the optimal life. Dr. Rand, you're looking pretty young today. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. Don't don't make your nose grow, though. We're on uh, camera, right? <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, I, you're 60, right? Yes, sir. So if I look like you at 60, I'll be doing something right. <laughs> That's funny. Funny story about that uh, real quick. Uh, I knew I was getting older when uh, I mean, I, I thank you for the compliment, by the way. But, you know, as a as a male who uh, uh, I think at the time I was still single, I remember going through a checkout line and a cute gal at the checkout counter says, sir, uh, do you mind if I ask your age? And I told her whatever it was. And I'm in my 40s, probably back then or whatever it was. And she says, uh, boy, I hope my boyfriend looks like you do when he's your age. <laughs> I remember thinking, honey, I know you mean to be complimentary, but you just like <laughs> right into the heart, right? Like that's obviously funny. I'm not in that league anymore, right? I'm an old guy. Yeah, well, uh, old is a subjective term, which we'll obviously get to because you're, you're helping people live longer and better. Um, but I wanted to start with the most important question. I'll probably ask you this entire interview. All right. Who is the better kickboxer, you or Andrew Tate? <laughs> is that a trick question? <laughs> yeah, Andrew Tate, I'm sure. Yeah, no, I, I was, uh, I, I just did exhibitions and stuff. I, I realized very, er well, not early enough, probably, that uh, when you get hit in the head pretty hard on a Monday and all of a sudden you're walking down the halls on a Thursday and you feel that really weird feeling that fighters will relate to, I'm sure they're listening. And it sends chills literally through your spine. You go, okay, this is not good for you long-term. And of course, as you can tell by my nose, probably, I was one of those guys didn't have much defense. My favorite coach in the whole world, uh, Bojack, didn't teach us much defense. It was all about offense. So if I'm getting 10 years to trade for one of mine that's supposed to put you back, not a good trade, right? No, so, yeah. No, no doubt about it. Okay. Well, our Andrew Tate, that's a good answer, I guess. Yeah, for uh, sure. So I think I came across you. I saw a video of you on YouTube and you were talking about uh, testosterone replacement therapy and how that decreases sperm. And, and you were talking about the HCG stuff. So let's start there because I think that ties into uh, the, the steroid stigma that you talk about um, and how it impacts most people over 30. What's your take on uh, TRT? Let's start with that. Well, yeah, there's been a lot of stigma attached to testosterone. I was joking the other day, you know, they ought to find a way to rebrand it because it's uh, it just it's always had a bad – I shouldn't say always. I think once the 76 Olympics came through and it was banned in that particular Olympics, you know, it wasn't banned before 76. Uh, it just got a bad rap, much like uh, – and forgive the analogy, but I think it's apropos – LSD and some of the psychedelic drugs uh, – you know, got a bad rap somewhere, you know, after Timothy Leary made them possible, not possible, sorry, uh, uh, more known, but then it, it sort of soured everybody. And and now here it is, however many years later, and we're finally getting back to using those therapeutically and, and universities like John Hopkins are, are using them. I think that's what's come about with testosterone. Now the cat's out of the bag. You've got Certainly for the men, it's a lot easier because you've got urologists picking up the ball now and running with it. Whereas, unfortunately for women, I would say OBGYNs are not doing a similar job. That's unfortunate because men and women both need testosterone. But, uh, you know, there are other practitioners out there like me and others that have said, well, you know, let, let's see what we can do to help these people because it's a no-brainer. Despite the, um, you know, the stigma 
it works. And there's no two ways about it. And when I say it works, it works to relieve the symptoms of lack thereof, uh, lack of testosterone, which include, um, you know, a decrease in energy, a decrease in libido, a decrease in just a general sense of well-being. Uh, one of my favorite studies related to that was back in the 50s, they used testosterone, which back then even they knew wasn't just for men, but it was on a group of about 50 uh, females with so-called refractory to treatment depression. And I think, and I'll probably get this wrong, but somewhere around 85% success rate. That's phenomenal, right? So um, probably lost track of your original question here, but TRT is is definitely something that has made people's lives much, much better. When we were talking before we started about, you know, increasing health span, not just longevity, but healthy longevity. Uh, it, it makes for a totally different world when you wake up in the morning feeling like you did when you were 20 or 30 again, right? That's correct. And then one of the things that people don't necessarily know when they start TRT is that it does decrease sperm production. It could easily decrease sperm all the way down to zero if you do it for no. an extended period of time. So how do, if somebody is on it, but they still want to be able to conceive one day, there are different ways to, to regenerate the sperm, correct? Yeah. And you asked, I'm sorry, as part of your first question. And I, and I, and I missed that one, but yeah, this is another part of that. We'll call it a stigma again, attached to testosterone, at least with males, obviously that it's going to reduce your sperm count, which yes, it will. But remember this, first of all, our official definition of infertility is fewer than 15 million per milliliter. And I always think of that Monty Python movie, you know, uh, every sperm is sacred. All it takes is one sperm to do the job. So when we talk about official numbers, oh yeah, I'm infertile now. Well, it doesn't mean he can't produce necessarily, but, but, but that aside, um, knocking on wood here, I have yet to ever run across a patient who's, if their fertility was reduced to zero, who wasn't able to restore it. Okay. There's a lot of legend out there about, for example, use of HCG and you can only use as much as 500 uh, units a day of HCG and I'll circle back to that in a second, but uh, uh, otherwise you desensitize the lytic cells. Uh, I can remember the first time I did, and the only time I've ever done rounds with Dr. Lipschultz out of Baylor, I asked him that question at our first break because I was dying to figure out where that knowledge came from. And he just looked at me and goes, legend. Uh, and the very next patient, he prescribed 3,000 IU of HCG every other day to a 39-year-old male who was working on his second child. And you can do this, you can use HCG, which is stands for human choranogonadotropin. You can use this in therapy concurrently with TRT, okay, so that you can still get all the benefits and keep or restore your fertility. Um, and it just, obviously it makes life so much easier. HCG mimics the signal from the pituitary that would, would normally be luteinizing hormone. As a matter of fact, ACG looks so much like luteinizing hormone. We call it not an analog, but a homolog. So it's a very effective tool to maintain or restore fertility. And as I said earlier, uh, have, have yet to be skunked on that one. If you have been fertile before using TRT, there's no reason why you can't. And just think about females who use oral birth control, hormonal birth control. Mm -hmm. It works the same way. You can suppress your own production. And as soon as you stop using it, it'll re-equilibrate. And, you know, you'll restore what you had before or close to it. In other words, 
if you started at age 45 and then decide to come off uh, TRT at age 55, you're not going to get 45-year-old testosterone levels restored. You'll get 55-year-old uh, levels restored. And one last thing, man, I'll, I'll stop on my riff here. But uh, that said, please, and I have to say this typically twice to patients, do not think that just because you go on TRT, and this goes back to the legend of it, that you are shooting blanks. Do not think you're shooting blanks if you're on TRT. <laughs> right. Okay. No, seriously. Uh, it, it does not necessarily reduce your fertility to zero. It typically does reduce it, but rarely. It's not, to a, zero. It's not a bulletproof contraceptive. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that kind of leads me into uh, you break your book out into uh, cheating death. We've linked it in the show notes and I want to kind of get into some of this. I have had a chance. Your team was kind enough to send me an advanced PDF copy. I've been able to go through some of that. Um, so, and I think the book from what I've seen and read, it, it's a really incredible book. You break it out into various uh, parts. I think there's five parts in total and the regenerating bodies, rethinking aging is the, the first part. And some of that does talk about uh, lack of uh, libido, lack of sex drive, sexual dysfunction. And I think you talk about yourself and you you give your own how you've been able to cheat uh the sex drive or the this dysfunction how what's causing uh besides maybe lack of testosterone in men what else is potentially causing uh, a lack of desire to have sex uh erectile dysfunction all those kind of things well when it comes to the mechanics of it first of all testosterone is part of the mechanics as well as the desire right but uh, nitric oxide is necessary for erectile function. Okay. Um, if you don't have enough production of nitric oxide, even some of these PD five inhibitors, like, uh, the, the brand names of Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, and, um, Sandra, they won't work because what they do is they essentially block the reabsorption of nitric oxide. If there's none of that there, well then I believe there's a 30% failure rate because, there's no nitric oxide to begin with. And as we age, we, we, we depend upon uh, two, way, two sources of nitric oxide production. One is uh, endothelial nitric oxide synthase. These are uh, cells inside the, the, the walls of the vessels that produce this, this nitric oxide, which helps uh, increase flow to the penis while decreasing flow out, more of an increase than a decrease. It, it just changes that balance. Um, and as that diminishes with age, which by the way is enhanced no matter at what age by exercise, go figure, uh, yet another plug for, for, the, for the, what I call the great equalizer exercise. We can compensate for that diminishment of function in those cells as we age by eating more nitrite and nitrate containing foods. So the green leafy vegetables, for example, and of course the famous one is beets, right? Eat your beets, uh, a great source of nitrite and nitrates and, and, Speaking that to that, uh, one of the big culprits, and I, I hope you saw that in the book too, um, uh, in reducing the effectiveness of your dietary nitrites and nitrates is anything that kills your mouth bacteria. And not to pick on, and maybe I shouldn't actually say which brand out loud, but uh, there's one that actually is not a a deodorant for the mouth that actually does kill germs. Okay, we we I've tested it personally in a petri dish, uh, but if you use that as a, as you know, for something other than a, a treatment, for example, if you had a surgery or abscess tooth or something like that, you had to treat, uh, if you use that on a regular basis, you will diminish your, your body's ability to produce nitric oxide. And of course, I, 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 I think I 
use an entire chapter to talk about the benefits of nitric oxide that go well beyond erectile function. But uh, that's a long-winded uh, um, answer to, to your question about, yeah, beyond testosterone, there are other things that help with erectile function. So the nitric oxide is, is clearly important. And so let me ask you about supplementation then. Are you a believer in supplementation, whether it's a nitric oxide pill, uh, vitamin C, vitamin D, vitamin B12? I know you talk about some of this stuff on your social media as well. So talk to us overall about supplementation, which ones you're in favor of and, and maybe others that you're not. Sure. Purposely talking about... Um uh well picking on your words there you know belief I, I refer to you know that's religion that's faith science absolutely 100 supports supplements and i'll go head to head with anybody to discuss that civilly of course uh because it's just the the evidence is irrefutable now a lot of people will say well yeah but it's based upon observational studies and and retrospectives which are filled with with holes statistically yes i agree there are problems with many of the studies, but uh, supplementation is absolutely beneficial. And I would say if you want to lead, lead that life of longevity and healthful longevity, particularly as we grow older, we're going to have to use them to, to, to make up for what you know we quite simply can't make or absorb. Uh, when it comes to specifics, uh, going back to the PD-5 inhibitors, um, uh, there's not a chapter devoted to it, but as part of, I think, the nitric oxide chapter, um, I refer to a study of about 44,000 men in Sweden. Uh, long story short, there was up to an 81% all-cause mortality reduction by those that used PD-5 inhibitors. I did say that right, 8-1, 81% all-cause re reduction. I have to also give props to Dr. Eugene Shippen, who drew my attention to that study. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't have found it, I don't think. But um, think about that for a second. If, 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 if I could develop something, if I could find something that gave us an 11% all-cause mortality reduction, this Zoom cast, at least on my end, would be on a 700-foot yacht in the Bahamas, probably on a satellite phone rather than whatever we're using now. Because that's amazing, 81%. So uh, there, there are many benefits other than sexual benefits to nitric oxide, to your health, to nitric oxide production and maintenance. Uh, so uh, a daily PD-5 inhibitor for males, certainly we don't have the proof yet, but we understand the mechanisms by which it might work by upregulating camp uh, in the cell, et cetera. So, you know, most likely females would certainly benefit from it. And of course, very briefly, you know, the history of the PD-5 inhibitors, they were developed to treat pulmonary hypertension. So, you know, even if they simply reduce blood pressure by three to six points or something like that, it's still going to be beneficial. So my point is you got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Uh, Dr. Ram, really what, is, uh, pul what exactly is that pul pulmonary hypertension? Sorry, it's a form, it's a specific form of, of hypertension that can be actually quite devastating. It's not as prevalent as what we call essential hypertension, which is really just a way of saying, hey, you got hypertension, we have no idea why, as opposed to something like secondary hypertension where there's a, um, uh, a narrowed artery in the kidneys, which affects the way the kidneys process your blood and, and, and regulates the, the volume, et cetera. But yeah, sorry. Um, but, but really, you know, as a, as a side note, uh, we noticed what they did. There was a side effect. And, and yeah, uh, I don't think Cialis or any of those are used for pulmonary hypertension anymore, more for just erectile 
uh, dysfunction and for, for purposes I describe just general health. Yes. So uh, other supplementation, you're, you're a fan, you support the supplements. Uh, clearly you're in support of those. What about, uh, what about melatonin? What's your take on melatonin for sleep? Melatonin is one of the safest ways to modulate the ability to fall asleep, which is an issue for, for some, but I, in my practice anyway, most people have trouble staying asleep rather than falling asleep. Most of us are exhausted by the end of the day and don't have a problem falling asleep, but melatonin is great as are most of the supplements or drugs out there. Okay. Designed for insomnia. They're actually designed to help you fall asleep rather than stay asleep. Now that said, you could use melatonin for both. If say you fall asleep at 10, you wake up at two and you don't have to get up again until six. You could take another dose of melatonin to help yourself fall asleep again. But melatonin is very safe in that it's a naturally produced substance by the body and it's a natural brain antioxidant. Uh, the chief complaint I hear is either, well, it doesn't work well enough. Okay, fair enough. Uh, or, hey, I wake up groggy in the morning and then I joke, hey, at least you got your sleep. And that's why they invented espresso. <laughs> there you go. So, okay. So that's some on the supplementation stuff. Um, what about people that come to you that are just, they have lived an unhealthy lifestyle and they've been living this way for a long time. They've had bad nutrition. They maybe are drinking too much. They smoke all these things. And they're in their forties, fifties, sixties, maybe they're coming to you. Is it too late for them to turn it around? Never too late. And, and here's where we get into maybe kind of dovetailing off the supplement question. Uh, this is where you get more specific with supplements, depending upon what they come in with, what their history is. Because uh, again, to finish off that topic, uh, you know, if you read the label on supplements, you'd be taking every single one of them right. because this does this and this does that. And going back to what you mentioned earlier about, for example, B12, if you've got plenty of B12, it's kind of like running around with your uh, car, plenty of oil in the, in the container. Um, if I add another quart, well, I'm just carrying it around. There's only so much that can go in each cylinder combustion. So who cares if you have extra? And that explains why a lot of people say, well, I tried vitamin B12. It didn't do anything for me. Well, you probably weren't short in it. But when you have somebody who comes into your office with a history you just said, yeah, that's where there's some making up to do. And you might choose supplements accordingly, obviously, to, to, to what their ailments are. And of course, part of that too is where they're trying to go from there. You know, before we started uh, on air, so to speak, you know, we talked about people have different goals. Some people just want to get back to quote unquote normal. Some people will say, hey, no, I want to, you know, God forbid, run a marathon. So, um, yeah, the, the message, the take home message is never too late. And the body has a wonderful way of correcting for some of our health mistakes, uh, a, a process called autophagy, where we can go back and clean up the cellular mess, kind of like a kitchen uh that's used to you know crank out food in a restaurant at some point you got to go back and and clean up the mess otherwise you're cooking with dirty dish, dishes and de uh, countertops the body has a way to do that and so we can activate that process more so than would be considered normal or or more so than has been occurring because you've been disrupting that process by not for example getting enough exercise or not getting enough sleep so it's never too late and we can we can we can correct for much of what has occurred to date with anybody who comes in the office how important is the emotional stuff dr rand and, and that might not be part of your specialty or maybe it is but i assume a lot of these people that are coming to you yes it's easy to potentially 
diagnose some of these things that deficiencies or problems that they're having, but how do you diagnose the emotional and the mental stuff? First part of your question is huge. And the problem is most physicians or anyone has a problem speaking to that because from a scientific standpoint, it's very difficult to prove that uh, without getting into the weeds too much. I mean, how do you isolate enough issues to say, oh, see, this is the problem. It's all emotional. Uh, so a lot of it is based upon observation and anecdotal information. But if you look at, and I had this discussion just yesterday, if you look at the people that live a hundred years or more, the, the so-called blue zone uh, cultures, there isn't necessarily a common thread there. For example, with diet. Oh, well, this, you know, the group in Loma Linda is, is vegan. Well, the group in Costa Rica eats, eats meat as much as they can afford. Okay. So that's not it. But across the board with these cultures, what you find is that the, what we call the emotional or the support network is solid. Okay. And I would argue that's the common thread. And so that along with, we do have other fairly well-designed studies that show that the reduction of stress as you know, a scientific uh, moniker we can place on on something that's associated with um, you know uh, emotional health or lack thereof uh, is definitely affecting. You know, we can talk about the the mechanisms that involve cortisol, so we can get into some science of it. But I would argue it's huge. We're humans, and the, one of the ways we survived, and this is not necessarily conjecture, but uh, anthropologists will say, you know, we we survived as a group. Right. And so there is in most of us this desire to stay connected to the group and that provides emotional support and a lack of stress. And those cultures that do contain those centenarians has that uh, connectedness and that emotional health mm. uh, uh, attached to longevity and, and healthy longevity. Very interesting. Um, so, OK, so we talk about we've talked about the bad health choices. It's never too late. You talk to uh, about kind of what we just talked about and piggybacking off of it being proactive in your approach versus reactive and instead of waiting until you're 50 or 60 years old to start making changes what can people that are listening to this right now that are in their 20s maybe 30s start doing dr rand to either mitigate eliminate delay some of the ailments that we get as we continue to age Start with some good habits. We know, for example, and I know this is what, you know, grandma and great grandma said and everything, but it's still worth repeating and it's still true. Sufficient sleep, sufficient uh, exercise, and uh, sufficient nutrition. Those three pillars are just that, okay? But it sounds so different, doctor, when, when grandma tells you that versus Dr. Rand. Or your spouse even, who happens to be a doctor, but because it's your spouse, you're not going to listen, right? Correct. Uh, yeah, no, but but we have more and more science attached to this now, so it makes it easier to listen. And 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 for those that are you know barking in directions, it's easier to say. And it's because not just because I'm saying or your great grandmother said it, but because this evidence and that evidence. One of my favorites is to cite uh, one of the studies you know uh, from from the sleep doctors like Dr. Bruce and, and Dr. Walker that says five consecutive nights of inadequate sleep. And this happens a lot for someone, for example, who has chronic sleep apnea. Five nights in a row can reduce your insulin sensitivity by as much as 50%. Well, you may hear that term bandied about those terms, insulin sens insensitivity. 
that's the arguably metabolic dysfunction and insulin insensitivity is a linchpin of about five of the top major causes of disease in the United States, right? So that's no small tidbit or, or fun fact. Um, let me just ask and, you too. Let me just yeah. interject metabolic dysfunction or syndrome. Uh, I just had a conversation about this the other day. Uh, two thirds of Americans over, I don't even remember what the age was, but it affects two thirds of Americans over like 40 years old. Is that true? I'm not sure about that stat, but we estimate that about a hundred million Americans or more have fatty liver or, um, yeah, I, mean, I guess what you would call metabolic dysfunction, that, that would include fatty liver and, and blood sugar disorders. So yeah, diabetes, um, cholesterol, right. Yeah, diagnosed or undiagnosed. So that's a big number. Yeah, whether it's two thirds or, or again, I, I think it's closer to a third, what I've read anyway. And um, yeah, that's where, <laughs> you know, if you haven't been diagnosed yet, it's safe to be proactive one way or the other. And because because proper rest, nutrition and exercise can stave those off. The problem is, and, and I think if you're referring to the point I make in the book, I'm not sure I said it this way, but you know, you get to a point where you know you can't turn hamburger back into a cow. So in that regard, uh, there is a too late point for certain things like your joints, where the cartilage has been absolutely wrecked and you're bone on bone. Well, okay, well then it's too late. But you can be proactive about that in in your say 20s and 30s if you know, okay, well for a living I'm a I work on an oil rig or I'm a professional tennis player, I better start considering things that are regenerative, such as platelet-rich plasma therapy or stem cells or both, or even things like Synvis, you know, using hyaluronin or, or, you know, hyaluronic acid derivatives to keep those areas healthy before they become a problem. And I, I use the analogy to, you know, brake pads. When do we change the brake pads? When you start hearing them squeak. Right. Well, then you're already metal to metal and you've got a problem there that needs to be fixed right away. If you can replace the brake pad before then you have to go into the, the rotors and the other metal parts, well, then you're way ahead of the game. So to your point, yeah, or to answer your question, we have to look at some of this data. We have to start making these things uh, available and that involves FDA approval or at least not banning them anymore, which has become the case in, in the last four months when it comes to stem cells. And, and spread the word, which is part of the purpose of the book, so that people at least have the choice to be proactive about it or not and say, okay, well, like I said, I'm 30, I'm a professional tennis player, and I play on hard court. I better start looking into ways to preserve my hips, knees, and ankles. Mm. Well stated. Um, so, and again, we did talk about the emotional stuff. So let me ask you, since that is one of the things that people should be working on, because that's probably – the biggest foundational element of everything is what you're feeling from within because then all the branches trickle from there. So um, anxiety, depression, trauma, is this all in our head or can the body fix it itself? Wow. That can get, that's a loaded question. And then I mean, we go back as far as, you know, philosophers like Descartes, you know, the separation of mind and body, not true. I mean, it's all connected. So is it all in the head? No, but it does involve the head, right? And and this gets into a fascinating part of science that we're in medicine that we're developing now. The the gut brain connection. Have you heard that remark before? You know, we've got more neurochemicals produced in the gut than we do in the brain, and they are connected. And so, if you have um, dysfunction or imbalance 
in the gut that can affect the brain. And they're connected too, because what I just said, if you're not getting enough sleep, look, we all know how we can be if we stay up too late on a Saturday, you know, wake up, uh, uh, sorry, st- say too, up too late on Friday and wake up on a Saturday, crabby, cranky, whatever. Uh, it affects your gut microbiome, your your balance in the gut and that, that production of hormones with these things that live with us, but we're dependent upon that make, for example, serotonin. 90% of the serotonin that we have floating around is made in the gut, not the brain. Okay, so if we're not doing the right things, sleeping properly, uh, eating properly, and exercise gets thrown in there too, then that alone can throw off the mental component, we'll call it, if we're going to make that separation. So absolutely, I, I guess to the point I think you're trying to make, is it real or imagined? Absolutely real. And by the way, who cares if it's so-called imagined, right? It's still affecting you. Right. So Regardless whether it's something, it yeah. yeah, whether it stems from the brain itself and some sort of genetic component, which I would argue is least likely to be the problem based upon my experience, most of it gets created in a life uh, of just imbalance. And so I guess the upshot of that that, that, that should be uh, should lead to optimism is we can correct it. We've got uh, guys like uh, Dr. Talbot and, and Dr. Weatherly uh, who, who work with uh, the gut and studying the, the, the bacteria in there. Excuse me. They've, they've found certain bugs that help produce a greater balance and more serotonin, more dopamine, more GABA. These are all neurochemicals that can help with the brain's function and keep us more stable, less uh, less likely to be stressed. There are some that gobble up the cortisol we produce, so it's not stuck. It's not chronically uh, being uh, felt by the body, as it were. So, yeah, that that opens up uh, a lot of possibilities for us. Mm. There's so many different things that you focus on in this book, and, and there's it, it's all over the place from general nutrition and health to longevity to more more specific things like uh like cancer you cheat you you talk about cheating cancer um so let's jump to a few of these random things that you're also covering throughout and uh just kind of highlight some of that cheating cancer with poly how do you say that polyphenols polyphenols talk to us about that so here I owe uh, a debt to one of my uh, mentors, friends, peers, uh, Dr. Melikan, uh, Gagic Melikan, who taught at CSUN in uh, my organic chemistry class. But essentially, well, one cool thing I should mention real quick, uh, you know, we use antioxidants kind of willy-nilly and without getting in the weeds too much, we're trying to quench free radicals, right? Everyone talks about free radicals and antioxidants, go ahead and quench those, balance those out, eliminate them. Well, it's, a, it's an equation. And if you use too many antioxidants, you can create free radicals, not quench them. And, um, you know, polyphenols, you could argue, are the same way. But when it comes to cancer, they work, again, without getting into the weeds. And I, and I do, a, I hope, a decent job of, of getting into the weeds, but making it understandable in the book. But orthoquinones are what are produced eventually when you use a lot of, uh, of polyphenols. And, and those can disrupt the DNA, they can they can kill the cells. And that's what basically chemotherapy does. A lot of the chemo, chemotherapies that are out there do. And that's why I refer to some of these polyphenolic compounds like, you know, EGCG, which is derived from green tea extract as uh, uh, chemotherapy light, okay? 
And, and there are a lot of cultures that eat a lot of these polyphenols as part of a very colorful plate full of vegetables or as part of their daily, you know, green tea consumption ritual. And, and they tend to have la- less uh, cancer, presumably because of this anti-cancer effect that involves these polyphenols and or- the formation of orthoquinones, which kills these cells. And you go, well, wait a minute, you're killing cells. Very briefly, again, without getting into the weeds, chemotherapy works. And I know it sounds counterintuitive, but it works by killing the cancer cells faster than regular cells. If anyone's ever gone through true chemotherapy, they'll say, yeah, we killed the cancer, but it almost killed me first. And the theory is that because cancer replicates more quickly, you break up that cycle of regeneration faster in the cancer cells and therefore kill off the cancer before you break off the uh, the and kill the that 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 system of, of regeneration in in the in the normal healthy cells. So I hope that gives the readers or listeners a, a bit of an understanding as to why it works. But yeah, polyphenols have have uh, a lot of benefit beyond just treating cancer. Polyphenols, interesting. Uh, I wasn't going to go this interview without asking you one of your favorite things, one of your main areas of expertise: stem cells. So talk to us about stem cells. I think there's muse cells as well. Um, What exactly are stem cells and why are they helpful? So what they are essentially is a form of regeneration to oppose the degeneration that occurs from just being alive on the planet. And then, of course, uh, maybe playing tennis or, or, or working at things that speed the process of degeneration, you know, wear and tear. Uh, stem cells are fascinating because uh, I joke, you know, a monkey could use them effectively because essentially they know what to do. You put them in, in the system and they find the damaged tissue and replace the damaged tissue with healthy cells. Uh, muse cells uh, are uh, something that are fewer in number and found uh, basically in all the surrounding tissues, uh, uh, surrounding organs, you know, the fascia and whatnot. Um, and they work even more strongly, arguably, than stem cells, and they're activated by stress. So, and there's a camp that believes they're really just stem cells that become uh, these so-called mu cells under stressful conditions. Um, I'm in the camp, though, that would argue that no, they are a separate cell altogether, and they 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 appear in the most stressful situations for good reason, and they're the most powerful. And what they do are is similar to what stem cells do they they home in on the areas that need repair but they can actually cross the blood brain barrier um and they don't have a potential to to initiate or further cancer unlike stem cells which have the potential to further cancer but uh don't 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 cause cancer where are common areas that people i know the shoulders is a big one where else do people get stem cells typically inserted well, that's kind of a loaded question, too, because in the United States, we haven't advanced the medicine as far as, say, someplace like Japan or even Thailand or Costa Rica because of uh, legal constraints. But um, you can certainly inject it into a joint and help with regeneration of tissue there, particularly cartilage or uh, a longitudinal tear in a labrum or a meniscus. But uh, you can infuse them and they will, again, they will find because the blood goes everywhere, right? They could find damaged heart uh, tissue that needs repair from a from a mild you know a heart attack. Uh, so really, they're they're they can be used for anything, and they can be used very easily either directly into the area or nearby, and they'll find uh, you know they'll show up for the work they need to do. Yes, 
I've heard phenomenal things about stem cells. Never used them, but I've heard great things. Um, talk to us uh, briefly about gene editing. What exactly is that? So there's a lot of things that come into play simply because you inherited it. You know, you chose your parents incorrectly in some ways, and you're stuck with these genes that have either direct effect or propensity for uh, an effect in your life. Uh, whether it's, you know, prematurely having uh, macular degeneration, so it affects your ability to see. And with gene editing, we can go back in, essentially using, uh, uh, typically we use CRISPR. So we're using a, a, a capsule that used to contain a virus, but instead we put, and I'll keep this as basic as possible. We put something in there that's going to be used to uh, replace the old gene with the new gene. And, and really it goes into specifically the DNA. So we're cutting out the bad portion of the DNA and we're replacing it with the, what we want to. Uh, so instead of an AT, there's an AC or something like that. And this goes into stuff that you flushed long after high school physiology. So I'll stop there. But anyway, we, we can change what you were born with is what it boils down to. And it's really cool in that there, there forward, you no longer have to worry about that propensity anymore. And think about that for a second. We, you know, we've actually changed your makeup so that you don't have to worry about uh, something that you were born with anymore. I mean, I, I can't say it any more simple than that. And that's fascinating, don't you think? I mean, extremely that, fascinating. What are are there any risks though on the flip side of that? Yeah, we haven't perfected it yet. I mean, we're we're doing stuff, and I'm not joking when I say you know we're making uh, dogs that glow in the dark. And I, you know, I'm not a big fan of that. But I, the point is that people have done this because it's so easy to do, so simple. Uh, that said, though, uh, when it comes to some more complicated diseases, uh, and we're focusing on the rare diseases, why? And, and the ones that tend to kill you early, uh, because. There's a there's a rush, if you will, to get those uh, addressed sooner rather than later. We don't need purple glowing dogs as much as we need, you know, people that can uh, can uh, stave off Huntington's Korea, for example, which normally kills you very painfully by the time you're in your mid 30s. So hmm. uh, the problem is sometimes we don't get the the sequence right, or it doesn't splice properly or, or reconnect properly. I'm talking about the the sequence in, in the in the genome. Uh, and so we do have some problems with it, but we've also had plenty of successes and that field is growing rapidly and we're using other ways to splice the gene other than the CRISPR nine. Uh, and so again, I, I mean, I could, this is a whole topic of the book, as you know, and I, we could spend hours just talking about this and I don't mean to throw out these terms that people are going, what is he talking about? Without no, I got to tell you, I love, I like that you're throwing out some of these terms because it will force me at least to go back and look into some of them and hopefully the listeners as well. But go ahead. Well, what, what I was getting at is that, you know, we're, we're not only changing the way we, we package it and, 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 and so based upon the packaging, you know, we can change the way we do it based upon the way we, we splice it. Uh, sometimes we're cutting and pasting, sometimes we're just cutting uh, sometimes we're just pasting. So there's just some different ways to approach it, but we're, we're, we're ironing it out and we're finding the ways to do it without risk. And that again, is just yet another way we're going to change the face of, of our aging. Wow. That sounds like incredible potential where you are living in a society one day where you could put yourself in a position. I'm just picking something, multiple sclerosis. Maybe it's a bad example. I don't know, but you can go in great and, example. and 
okay? And you could edit the genes so that that person has an extremely high likelihood they'll never have to experience MS. Absolutely. And, 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 and on top of that, we already have stem cells to, if we haven't the capacity to change, the, to edit the genes yet, we can uh, regenerate the, the nerves, Okay, I have a patient I can speak about him freely. I think I, I might even in the book, David Lyons, uh, very public. He was patient zero, we call him at, at American Cryostem, which is a public health company that does this type of thing. He was treated down in Cayman, Grand Cayman. And after the first treatment of roughly 150 million cells came back, most of his multiple sclerosis effects were left sided from vision down to gait. And he was a new man. Um, and with enough stem cell treatments, you can get to the point where you set ahead of the game, sometimes even resolve it permanently, you know, with, in the course of say 2 billion cells of treatment, uh, and you're done with MS. Wow. Incredible, incredible stuff. Really fascinating. Uh, let's finish it up with, uh, with peptides. What exactly are peptides and how do they help prolong life? So peptides are sequences of amino acids that are strung together in certain ways. And I use a reference, you know, like, like tinker toys. So really you have potentially an infinite amount of structures you can make with these peptides, depending upon where you want to connect them. And depending upon the connections, the structure of the peptide, it enters a cell or doesn't. Uh, but once it enters a cell, uh, it, it operates differently to tell the nucleolus to, say, make uh, certain proteins that are folded this way. So they'll go out and do a job uh, differently than if they were folded in another way or if it's a different protein. Um, so and, and the classic example is insulin. You know, in, insulin is a peptide. And um, we found a way to obviously produce it uh, synthetically. And it's a game changer. There are so many other peptides that we can not only uh, produce synthetically, but make improvements upon it so that they're not so short acting, for example, or if we want them to act in, in a short acting manner, we can, again, just by changing the structure and we can address just about anything that the cell can do by creating a peptide that will instruct it to do what we want it to do. What age do you feel like uh, people live to today, at least here in the United States, is there an age that people live to that is generally, it's good and better? You're talking about living longer, but also living better. You don't want to live to 100 if it's going to be 20 miserable years. Is there kind of that tipping point currently in society of, okay, once you hit this number, there's a, a big number of people whose health declines rapidly. And if there is a number, where is that currently today? I don't know the answer to that one. I know that uh, from my accounting days, you know, you look at the insurance company's calculations um, uh, and if you make it to 85, and I know this sounds weird, but then you're more likely to make it to 95 as opposed to if you only make it to 84. So it's from what they call actuarial tables, which, you know, don't explain anything, but this kind of fun facts. Uh, when it comes to quality of life, all I can say really that we know is that it seems that the people that make it to 100 in good health are simply blessed with the ability to dodge the same old things that uh, are the you know the same morbidities and, and factors for mortality that affect us average folk right uh, at an earlier age. But it just they you know the, the people that live longer just are able somehow to postpone it a decade, two or three decades longer, and then they still succumb to the same things with gene editing, etc. 
it looks like we're going to be able to extend that even further. So we're not just postponing it, but we're canceling the inevitability of, say, you know, dying from complications of type 2 diabetes that eventually is uncontrollable. Uh, so to me, that's fascinating. I, I don't think it addresses your question. If you look at the obits, um, uh, I would say that most people who do a, a fairly decent job of taking care of themselves, whether it be physically and or emotionally, like we referred to earlier, are making it now without much challenge into their 90s and fairly healthfully. Wow. And this is just an anecdotal observation, as it were, uh, of what I've looked at over, since I'm really kind of 16 years old. It sounds like a morbid fascination, but it, it's all in keeping with, you know, hey, how are we doing as a general population? Um, remember, the I, averages are just that. They're averages. They're a mythical number. And, and our, 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 our point at which most of us die on average has dropped because of COVID specifically. And I think it's down to 77 or 78. That doesn't mean that most of us, well, I guess it does mean what it means. It's an average, but it, it, you know, the other side of that, the, particularly the, the longevity side in this case, we still have a bunch of people that are lasting longer in my, my observation and, and healthfully longer. Yes. And that where I'm going with that too is, do you see a, a, a society in, I don't know, the next 50 to a hundred years where people are able to live to 120, for example, with maybe the same kind of success that the same vibrance that people who are 85 or 90 today can do you see that happening absolutely and even better than those that are currently 80 or 90 i think we're going to be able to quote unquote reverse aging in the sense of your know, biological age and i like to quote uh, a guy in the business dr kurtzweil ray kurtzweil and i think I, I i mess up his quote but you know live long enough to live longer is i think the gist of it which is yeah with the advancements that we keep running across in an almost increasingly logarithmic fashion right uh, the advancements we've made in the last 10 years are more than double what we made in the last 100 years, right? So if we live another year, we'll have another advancement that will enable us to extend it another decade, our lives, in other words. So, yeah, I think it's very feasible uh, and very believable that, you know, someone born today will make it, you know, uh, to what will probably be an average of 120. And then, we'll, you know, through gene editing, because we believe right now we're limited by our genes to 120, but we start editing our genes and we might increase that to 150 to 200. Uh, wow. Who knows? Wow. Incredible stuff. Dr. Rand McLean, America's favorite longevity doctor. Uh, <laughs> Says who? <laughs> <laughs> cheating. I'll say it for you. Cheating deaths, the book. We'll link it here in the show notes. The new science of living longer and better. Uh, where else can people find you? Website, social media, et cetera. So our website for regenerative and sports medicine is at... Uh, PSR, Papa Sierra Romeo med.com. And then we have cheatingdeath.com for the book purchase, if that makes life easy. I hope. Beautiful. And uh, we'll make sure everything's linked up in the show notes. Dr. Rand, I really appreciate your time today. Hey, maybe I'll bring you back on the podcast when you're 120. Well, that'll mean uh, you're right there with me. We're not, not 120, but you're, 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 I'll, behind be about, me I'll be about 100. Heading toward 150. 100. Yeah, there I'll be go. about 100 or so. So, well, let's, let's plan on it then. Hey, man, wishing you all the best. Success with the book. Same to you. Thanks for having me, Nate.